0: Entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 4, given on January 4, 1921. If I had the task of presenting my subject purely according to the methods of spiritual science itself, I'd have to start, of course, from different premises, and in a sense, we'd also be able to reach our goal more quickly. However, such a presentation wouldn't fulfill the underlying intention of these lectures. For the whole point of these lectures is to build a bridge across the customary methods of scientific thought. Admittedly, I have chosen precisely those topics that make the bridge difficult to construct, because the habitual way of thinking in this realm lies far removed from reality. We have to combat an illusory point of view, but in the course of that argument it shall become apparent how we can emerge from the unsatisfying nature of the prevailing paradigm and arrive at a comprehension of the facts in question that conforms to reality. So, today, let's ask some fundamental questions about the genesis of modern ideas regarding celestial phenomena. It's essential that we distinguish two aspects of the genesis of these ideas. First, the ideas are derived from observation of the celestial phenomena, and theoretical explanations are then connected to the observations. Sometimes very far-reaching theories have been spun out of relatively few observations. That's the one thing. Certain theories have been developed out of initial observations. The other is that when certain theories have been attained, they are elaborated further into hypotheses. In this creating of hypotheses, a process that ends with the establishment of some specific cosmology, much arbitrariness prevails, since when theories are formed, any preconceived ideas existing in the minds of those who put forward the theory make themselves strongly felt. That's why I want to begin with something that might seem paradoxical at first, but will nevertheless prove fruitful in the further course of our studies, if we examine it carefully. Something prevails within the whole way of thinking that underlies modern science that might be called, and indeed has been called, the Regula Philosophandi. What this rule says is that if something has been ascribed to definite causes in one realm, one needs to ascribe it to the same causes in other realms. In setting up such a regula philosophandi, the starting point is generally something rational, something self-evident. It will be said, scientists of the Newtonian school will certainly say, that breathing must have the same causes in human beings as in animals, or that the combustion of a piece of wood must have the same cause whether in Europe or in America. Up to this point, the matter is indeed self-evident. But then a certain leap is made that passes unnoticed. Something is tacitly assumed to be self-evident. It's characteristic of people who are accustomed to think in this way when we see them extrapolating, for example saying that if a candle and the sun are both radiating light, the same causes must surely underlie the light of the candle and the light of the sun. Or, for example, if a stone falls to the ground and the moon orbits the earth, the same causes must underlie the movement of the stone and the movement of the moon. To such an argument they attach the further thought that if this were not the case, we would have no explanations at all in astronomy, for it is assumed that all explanation arises out of terrestrial experience. The explanations are based on earthly things. If the same causality didn't obtain in the heavens as on earth, we wouldn't be able to devise any theory at all. Yet, when you come to think of it, this regula philosophandi is nothing but a preconceived idea. Who in the world will guarantee that the causes of the shining of a candle and of the shining of the sun are one and the same. Or that in the falling of a stone or in the falling of the famous apple that led Newton to his theory, the underlying cause is the same as in the movements of the heavenly bodies. That's the kind of thing that our investigations need to justify. Until then, it's nothing but a preconceived idea. Prejudices of this kind enter in everywhere when, having first derived certain theoretical considerations and models, inductively from the observed phenomena, people rush with a blind obsession into deductive reasoning and construct models of the universe by deductive methods. What I am now describing so abstractly has become an historical fact, however, I want you to see that the trajectory set by the great thinkers of the early modern period, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, when they drew their conclusions from comparatively few observations, has continued in an unbroken line. Regarding Kepler, notably of his third law quoted yesterday, it has to be said that his analysis of the facts that were available to him is a work of genius. Kepler brought tremendous vigor to bear when, from the little that lay before him, he discovered this, in quotes, law, as we call it, or better, this, in quotes, conceptual summary of the phenomena of the universe. Then, however, there was a different development via Newton, which introduced something that was not actually derived from observation, but rather from essentially theoretical constructions, including concepts of force and mass and the like, which we must simply omit if we want to remain only within the given. And then that same paradigm is perpetuated. The trend in this direction reaches a culminating point, conceived admittedly with genius and originality in Laplace, where it leads to a genetic explanation of the entire cosmic system as you will convince yourselves if you read his famous book Celestial Mechanics or again in Kant in his title Universal Natural History and Theory of the Heavens. Subsequent thinkers within this paradigm constantly attempt to extend it using the models that have been worked out to save the appearances. They project them backward in an attempt to explain the origin of the universe using the nebular hypothesis and so forth. It really must be kept in mind that in the historical development of these theories we have something which is put together from inductions, made once again with no little genius in this domain, and from subsequent deductions that were thoroughly imbued with the predilections of their authors. Thus one can say, inasmuch as thinkers were inclined toward materialism, it was quite natural for them to mingle materialistic notions with their deductive concepts. Then it was no longer the facts that spoke. Rather, the basis was the theories that had emerged from the deductions. Thus, for example, by a process of induction... Astronomers first arrived at the theories which they summed up in the notion of a central body, the sun, with the planets revolving around it in ellipses, according to a certain law, namely, quote, the radius vector of a planet sweeps out equal sectors, equal areas, over equal periods of time. Close quote. Moreover, By observing the various planets of a solar system, it became possible to summarize their mutual relations in Kepler's third law The squares of the periods of revolution of the different planets are proportional to the cubes of the semi major axes. That yielded a certain picture. But it remained an open question whether this picture conformed completely to reality. It was actually an abstraction from reality. Just how it related to reality as a whole was not established. From this picture, not at all from reality, but from this picture, people deduced what then became a whole cosmogony. All of this has to be kept in mind. And now, from childhood on, we're all taught as though the theories constructed over the past few centuries by employing deductive reasoning corresponded to some kind of reality or another. Let's give our full attention to what's truly scientific, and therefore disregard, as far as possible, everything that's merely hypothetical and theoretical within this evolutionary progression. Instead, Let's take up those ideas which depart from reality only to the extent that later on we'll still be able to discover a connection with what's real within them. In everything I present today, my task will be to remain within what's properly scientific by following the paradigm prevailing in these fields only up to a certain point. It's essential that we follow the prevailing conceptual gestalt only so long as its concepts allow us to find our way back to reality again. We don't want to wander so far from reality, don't want our concepts to become so crude that we start deducing nebular hypotheses. Proceeding in this way, pursuing the modern way of forming concepts in this particular field, We have to begin by forming a concept that actually presented itself inductively to Kepler, already and was then elaborated further. That's where we have to focus our attention initially. Let me repeat expressly. We'll go only so far with these concepts that even if a concept turns out to be false, it will have remained close enough to reality that we'll be able to eliminate the mistake and return to what's true we need to develop a certain sensibility or tact, a nose for the reality and the concepts we entertain. There's no other way to go if we want to build a bridge from reality to the theories concocted by the prevailing scholarship and science. Here, then, to begin with, is a concept that we have to examine. The planets have eccentric paths. They describe ellipses. Now, That's a starting point from which we can set out with some confidence. The planets have eccentric paths and describe ellipses, in one focus of which is the sun. They describe the ellipses in accordance with the law that the radius vector of a planet sweeps out equal sectors, equal areas, over equal periods of time. A second essential idea to which we need to hold fast is that each planet has its own orbital plane. Although the planets carry out their revolutions generally in the same neighborhood, so to speak, yet for each planet there is the distinct plane of its orbit, more or less inclined to the plane of the sun's equator. Simply put, if this depicts the plane of the sun's equator, see Figure 1. An orbital plane of a planet would be thus. It wouldn't coincide at all with the plane of the Sun's equator. These are two very significant concepts, which arise directly from the facts of observation. And yet, in the very forming of them, we have to take note of something within the actual phenomena themselves, which rebels against them, as it were. For instance, if we are simply trying to think through our solar system in its totality, and base it entirely upon the two ideas of the planets moving in eccentric orbits and the orbital planes being inclined at varying degrees to the plane of the solar equator, difficulties will arise if we also take into account the movements of the comets. The moment we turn our attention to the cometary movements, the picture no longer comes out right. It will be easier to grasp the consequences by looking at the historical facts than by theorizing. Upon these two ideas, the proximity of the orbital planes of the planets to the plane of the Sun's equator and that the orbits are eccentric ellipses, Kant, Laplace, and their successors built up the nebular hypothesis. Follow what has emerged from this. As a last resort, and indeed only as a last resort, it's a way of representing the origin of the solar system. But the astronomical system that was constructed out of this representation actually contains no even remotely satisfying explanation of the part played by the comets. There are always anomalies within the paradigm. This ongoing discord between the comets and the astronomical paradigms that arose in the course of history proves that cometary life somehow rebels against a concept formed not from the whole, but only from a part of the whole. We must be clear, too, that the paths of the comets frequently coincide with those of other bodies, which also come into play within our system and present a riddle precisely through their association with the comets. These are meteor swarms whose paths very frequently, perhaps even always, coincide with the cometary paths. If we view our solar system as a whole, we're forced to conclude that the prevailing paradigm has gradually led to a certain complex of ideas, ideas with which we can't subdue the highly irregular and also arbitrary paths of the comets and the meteor swarms. They completely elude the grasp of the abstract models that have been devised. I would have to give a long historical account to show in detail how many difficulties have arisen in connection with the concrete facts when the investigators, or rather thinkers, approached the comets and meteor swarms with their astronomical theories. But all I want to do today is to point in certain directions that would lead to sound research. And in order to accomplish that, we need to consider yet another aspect. You see, starting out from concepts that have remained real, that still have a remnant of reality in them, we'll now try to wander back a bit. Indeed, it's always necessary to do this in relation to the outer world so that our concepts don't stray too far from reality. Because as human beings, we have a strong propensity to stray we have to work our way back again and again. We're already in grave danger the moment we form a concept such as the elliptical orbits of the planets and then immediately undertake to erect a theory upon this concept. After forming such a concept, it's far better to turn back to reality in order to see whether the concept needs correcting or at least some modification. That's the most important thing of all. It's clearly the case with regard to astronomical thinking. In biological and especially in medical thought, the same failing has led people very far astray. They're not mindful of the need to go back and check the concept they've formed against the facts to make sure there's no reason to modify it. The planets, then, move in ellipses. But these ellipses vary. They're sometimes more circular, sometimes more elliptical. We find this if we return to reality with the concept of the ellipse. In the course of time, the ellipse appears now more bulging, now more circular, and then again more like an ellipse. So if I merely say, quote, the planets move in ellipses, close quote, I fall far short of capturing the full reality of the situation. I have to modify the concept and say, the planets move in paths that continually struggle against becoming a circle, or remaining an ellipse. If I were now to draw the elliptical line, in order to do justice to the concept, I would have to make a rubber band, or form it flexibly in some other way, continually altering it within itself. For if I had formed the ellipse, which is there in one revolution of the planet, it would not do for the next revolution, and still less for the following one. So it's not the case that when I pass from reality to the rigidity of the concept, I still remain within reality. That's the one thing. The other is, we have said that the planes of the planetary orbits are inclined to the plane of the Sun's equator because the planets cross the points of intersection of their orbits with the ecliptic in an upward or downward direction, they are said to form nodes. But these also aren't fixed points. Rather, the lines that connect such nodes are mobile, and the inclinations of the planes to one another are also variable. Hence, if we try to express them in a single conceptual schema, these inclinations also bring us to a rigid concept which we must immediately modify in the face of the reality. For if an orbit is inclined at one time in one way and at another time in another way, the concept we brought forth initially has been modified. To be sure, once such a point has been reached, we can take the easy way out and say that they are in quotes disturbances and that the reality is only grasped Approximately with our concepts. Then we can go on swimming comfortably in further theories. But in the end, we swim so far that the fanciful models we construct from our theories no longer correspond to the reality they were meant to capture. Of course, it's easy to admit that this mutability of the eccentric orbits and of the mutual inclination of the planes of the orbits has to be connected somehow or other with the life of the whole solar system, or, shall we say, with its continuing activity. It has to be connected in some way, has to belong somehow to the living activity of the whole. That's self-evident. But even if you try to construct your concepts on that basis, that is, if you say to yourself, well, now, I'll bring such mobility into my thoughts, that I picture the ellipses continually bulging out and contracting, the planes of the orbits ascending, descending and rotating, and then from this starting point I'll build up a model of planetary movement that conforms to reality. That's all well and good. But if you think the idea through to the end, the logical consequence is a solar system that can't possibly go on existing. Through the accumulated effects of the disturbances that arise, especially through the variability of the nodes, the solar system would move inexorably toward its own ultimate death and rigidity. Something would arise that philosophers have pointed out again and again. While such a system can be thought out, in reality it would have had ample time to reach a terminal state. There's no reason why it shouldn't have done so. The infinitely many possible states would have been realized. Rigidity would have to be there already. We enter here into a realm where thought apparently comes to a standstill. We should be clear about that. Precisely by following my thinking through to its ultimate conclusions, I arrive at a system that's fixed and rigid. But then it's not reality. That I have before me. Now, however, we come to something else to which we must pay special attention. In pursuing these things further, you can find the theory of it in the work of Laplace. I'll just relate the phenomena. You find that the reason why the system has not actually reached rigidity, under the influence of the disturbances, the variability of the nodes, etc., is that the ratios of the periods of revolution, of the planets, are not commensurable. They're irrational numbers, fractions yielding decimals to an infinite number of places. So we say to ourselves, if we compare the periods of revolution of the planets, in the sense of Kepler's third law, the ratios of these periods can't be given in integers, nor in finite fractions, but only in irrational numbers through numbers that don't add up in some sense. Thus, modern astronomy also clearly shows that it's to the incommensurability of the ratios between the periodicities of the several planets, even as expressed in Kepler's Third Law, that the planetary system owes its continued mobility. Otherwise, it would necessarily have come to a standstill long ago. Now, let's look very carefully at what's happened. Ultimately, we're obliged to base our thoughts about the solar system on numbers that elude our grasp. This is something of immense importance. The necessity of scientific evolution itself leads us to think mathematically about the solar system in such a way that the mathematical results are no longer commensurable and the place where incommensurability arises, is the moment at which the mathematical development prescribes a rational number. We let the irrational number stand, we write the fraction in decimals, but only up to a certain place. Somewhere or other we just have to call it quits when we arrive at irrational numbers. The mathematicians among you will be clear about this you'll see that in dealing with incommensurable ratios I reach a point at which I have to say I calculate up to here and then I can't go any further. I can only say, forgive my using a somewhat amusing comparison on a serious subject, that this coming to an inevitable halt in mathematics reminds me of an episode that I experienced once in Berlin. A certain kind of variety show had become fashionable and one such entertainer was Peter Hilla, he had founded a kind of cabaret and wanted to read his own poems there. He was a very lovable person, in heart and soul a theosophist, but he had rather gone to seed in Bohemian circles. I went to a cabaret performance in which he read his own poems. One poem was unfinished, but he read aloud the lines that were complete. Quote, the sun came up, etc., close quote, the first line. Quote, the moon rose, etc. That was the second line. Each fragmentary line ended with etc. That was a reading I once attended. And in fact, it was very stimulating. Everyone could finish the line as he or she chose. Admittedly, you can't do that with irrational numbers, but here too you can only indicate that there's a further process. You can only say that the process continues in a certain direction, but nothing is given by which you might form an idea as to which numbers are still coming. It's important that precisely in the field of astronomy we're led into incommensurabilities. We're pushed by astronomy, right up to the very limits of mathematizing. Here the reality escapes us. Reality escapes us. We can't put it any other way. Reality eludes our grasp. Well, what does this all mean? It means that we apply the most secure of our sciences, mathematics, to the celestial phenomena, and in the last resort, the celestial phenomena don't submit to this most rigorous science. There comes a point at which they elude us precisely where we are about to reach their very life, they slip away into the realm of the incommensurable. Here, then, our grasp of reality comes to an end at a certain point and passes over into chaos. We can't say without more ado what this reality, which we are trying to follow mathematically, actually does when it slips away into the incommensurable What it's doing in there is surely related to its vitality, its ability to sustain its own life. To enter the full astronomical reality, we have to take leave of what we're able to master mathematically. The calculation itself plainly shows this. The very history of science shows it. This is the direction in which we have to move if we wish to proceed in a spirit that's in keeping with reality. And now let's consider the other side of the matter. If you follow it physiologically, you can begin from any point you like in embryonic development, whether it be from the development of the human embryo in the third or second month or the embryo of some other creature. You can follow the development back as far as you wish, with the means of modern science. In fact, it's possible only to a very, very limited extent, as those of you who have studied it will know. To the extent that concepts with any validity at all have been developed, you can trace the development back to a certain point, after which you cannot get much further, namely to the detachment of the ovum, the unfertilized ovum. Picture to yourselves how far back you can go. If you wish to go still further back, you would be entering the indeterminate realm of the whole maternal organism. This means that in going back you enter into a kind of chaos. You can't avoid it. And the fact that it's unavoidable is shown by the course of scientific development. Think of such scientific hypotheses as the theory of panspermia, for instance, where they speculated as to whether the single gamete was prepared out of the forces of the whole organism, which was more Darwin's point of view, or whether it developed in a more segregated way, exclusively within the sexual organs. When you study the course of scientific development in this field, you'll see that a great deal of fantasy was brought to bear on the attempt to explain the underlying genesis when tracing the genesis of the gamete back to the maternal organism. Then you enter into complete indeterminacy. There's hardly anything but speculation in mainstream science as to the connection between the ovum and the maternal organism. Then, at a certain point in its development, this ovum appears in a very determinate form, in a form which can be grasped at least approximately by mathematical or at any rate geometrical means. Diagrams can be made from a certain point onward and many such diagrams do exist within embryology. The development of the ovum and other cells can be delineated. You can model the real development with some precision. Thus you can begin to represent something that's geometry-like, something that can be represented in mathematical forms. Here you're following something real. In a way, it's the opposite of what we saw in astronomy. There we pursue a reality with our cognitional process and arrive at irrational numbers. The whole thing eludes us and escapes into chaos through the process of cognition itself. In embryology, we escape out of chaos. From a certain moment onward, we can grasp what emerges from chaos through certain forms that are analogous to the form of geometry. Therefore, we can say something like this. When we try to understand the universe mathematically, astronomy leads our cognitional process into chaos. And then, in embryology, pure observation reveals nothing but chaos, Things become chaotic the moment we're no longer able to observe. Then we emerge from chaos and enter into the realm of geometrizing. Hence certain biologists cherish as their ideal, indeed an entirely justified ideal, to grasp in a geometrizing way the facts that present themselves in embryology. Not just to paint naturalistic pictures, in figuring the developing embryo, but to construct the forms according to some inherent lawfulness that's analogous to the lawfulness of geometrical forms. That's a justified ideal. So we can say, when we do embryology by trying to follow the real process through observation, we emerge out of a sphere that's initially as remote from our understanding as the sphere of incommensurable ratios in astronomy. On the other hand, our cognition proceeds up to the point where we can't follow any longer mathematically. In embryology, on the other hand, our cognition begins at a certain point where we're first able to set to work with something analogous to geometry. Please carry the thought through to its conclusion. You can do that because it's a methodological thought, which is to say its actuality dwells within us. If in doing calculations we reach the incommensurable ratios, that is, if we reach a certain point where reality is no longer represented by a rational number, then we have to take up a new line of research by asking whether the same thing might not happen with geometrical form as with the structures of arithmetic and analysis. I'll say more about this in the next lecture. The mathematical process of analysis leads to an irrational number. Now let's pose the question, how do geometrical forms model the celestial movements? Doesn't this modeling also lead us to a specific point that's analogous to the irrational number resulting from analysis? In our study of the heavenly bodies, namely the planets, don't we bump up against a limit at which we have to admit that we can't use geometrical forms any longer as a means of illustration? The facts can no longer be grasped with geometrical forms? Just as we're forced to leave the realm of rational numbers, it may well be that we're forced to leave the realm in which reality can still be clothed in geometrical or arithmetical or algebraic or analytic forms such as in drawings of spirals and other figures derived from geometry. In that case geometry would also be leading us into a realm of incommensurability. And in this regard the situation in embryology is remarkable in any case. Analysis finds little application in embryology. But geometry makes its very ghostly presence felt the moment we begin to take hold of the embryological phenomena emerging from chaos. Here we're dealing not indeed with incommensurable ratios or irrational numbers, but rather with something that tends to pass from incommensurable into commensurable form. Thus, we've sought to grasp reality at two poles, on the one hand where the process of cognition leads from analysis into the incommensurable, and on the other where observation leads out of chaos to a grasping of reality in ever more commensurable forms. It's really essential that we start to attain inner clarity about these things if we aim to join the ongoing debates within conventional science. That's the only way we can make a contribution that conforms to what's real. Now, I'd like to add a methodological reflection that'll allow us to make our way into more concrete problems tomorrow. In what we do tomorrow, I'll want to build upon the following. In everything we've said up until now, we've been taking it for granted that earthly appearances have been approached from the standpoint of mathematics. It turned out that eventually mathematicians bump up against a limit A limit the encounter also in purely formal mathematics. Underlying our whole way of thinking in this realm, something passes unnoticed because it always hides behind the mask of the obvious. So we never get a hold of it in the right way. I mean, the whole question whether mathematics can be applied to reality at all. How are we actually proceeding when we do that? We develop mathematics as a formal science and it appears to us absolutely cogent in its conclusions. Then we apply it to reality, without giving a thought to the fact that we are actually doing so on the basis of certain presuppositions. Today, however, sufficient grounds have already been established for us to see that mathematics is only applicable to outer reality. On the basis of certain presuppositions. This becomes clear when mathematics bumps up against limits. Laws are devised, laws which are not obtained from external facts, as are, for example, Kepler's laws, but from the mathematical process itself. In fact, they're inductive laws developed within mathematics. Then they're employed deductively. Highly attenuated mathematical theories are erected upon them. Anyone who studies mathematics will encounter such laws. Our friend Dr. Blumel has significant things to say about this line of mathematical research in his recent lectures in Dornach. One of the laws in question is termed the commutative property, and it can be expressed thus. It's self-evident that A plus B equals B plus A, or A times B equals B times A. This is a self-evident fact, so long as one remains within the realm of real numbers. But it's really just an inductive law derived from the manipulation of the postulates implicit within the arithmetic of real numbers. The second law is the associative principle. It can be expressed as in parentheses, A plus B, then plus C, equals A plus, in parentheses, B plus C. Again, this is a law that has been derived simply by manipulating the postulates implicit within the arithmetic of real numbers. The third is the so-called distributive principle, expressible in the form A times, in parentheses, B plus C, equals A times B plus A times C. Yet again, it's a law obtained inductively by manipulating the postulates implicit within the arithmetic of real numbers. The fourth law may be expressed as follows. A product can equal zero only if at least one of the factors equals zero. This law again is only an inductive one derived by manipulating the postulates implicit within the arithmetic of real numbers. We have then these four laws, the commutative law, the associative law, the distributive law, and this law about the product being equal to zero. These laws are foundational within contemporary mathematics, and they're used as a basis for further work. There's no denying that the results are extraordinarily interesting. But the question is this. M- these laws hold good so long as we remain within the sphere of real numbers in their postulates. But no thought is ever given to the question whether they correspond to reality. Within the formalisms of the prevailing paradigms, it's undoubtedly true that A plus B equals B plus A. But is that also valid in the real world? There is no ascertainable reason why it should be valid there. We might be very astonished one day to find that it didn't work if we applied the idea that A plus B equals B plus A to some real process. But there's another side to it. We have within us a very strong inclination to cling to these laws. Thus we approach reality with them. And everything that doesn't fit in escapes our observation. That's the other side. In other words, we first set up postulates, then we apply them to reality, and take them as axioms of reality itself. We ought to say only, I will consider a certain sphere of reality and see how far I get with the proposition A plus B equals B plus A. I have no right to say anything more than that. For by approaching reality with this proposition, we meet what answers to it, and we elbow aside anything that doesn't. We have this same habit in other fields as well. In elementary physics we say, for example, bodies are subject to the law of inertia. We define inertia, in quotes, as the apparent fact that bodies don't leave their position or alter their state of motion without a definite impelling force. But that isn't an axiom, it's a postulate. I ought to say only, I'll call a body that doesn't alter its own state of motion inert, and now I'll seek in the real world for whatever answers to this postulate. By bringing certain concepts to bear, all that I'm actually doing is forming guidelines with which to penetrate reality, and I have to keep an open mind about permeating other facts with other concepts. Therefore, I regard the four basic properties of numbers in the right way only if I see them as something which gives me a certain direction, something which helps me regulate my approach to reality. I'll be mistaken if I take mathematics as constituting reality, for then in certain fields reality will simply contradict me. The incommensurability that we have seen arising within the study of celestial phenomena is just such a contradiction. The end of Lecture 4